While you wait for the Age of Victoria podcast's next episode to release, consider getting more history of one of Queen Victoria's final wars from the Forgotten Wars podcast, hosted by me, Michael Buster. My first season of the Forgotten Wars podcast focuses on the Anglo War War of 1899 to 1902 and preceding conflicts that ravaged Southern Africa and helped shape present-day South Africa. So start from the beginning of the Forgotten Wars podcast while you wait for the next episode of The Age of Victoria. Hello, everyone. This episode is slightly late because I've had to do a great deal of research on what is a really important topic. It is also a harrowing topic for many, dealing with abortion, miscarriage, as well as infanticide. If any of these topics are disturbing for you or bring up unpleasant memories, it is possible that you might be better off skipping this particular episode. There is also some frank biological and sexual language. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. Hello everyone. I really enjoyed doing the anniversary special and from the emails and comments, you all liked it too. Today, we are back to finishing the series on Victorian sex before we spend a little while looking at the Victorian class structure and then planning on a summary episode to bring all the threads together since Queen Victoria's accession to the throne all the way through the 1840s. So you and new listeners see how the jigsaw pieces all fit together. That's important as we have some big events to cover in the 1840s, including the Great Famine in Ireland, the building of the Thames Tunnel, the Union of Upper and Lower Canada, some enormous events in North America, like the Oregon Trail, the Gold Rush, and even the first mention of Groundhog Day in the diary of Mr. James Morris. The Indian subcontinent was still wrecked by conflicts, including the Anglo-Sikh and Anglo-Afghan wars, as the British extended their influence. There was also the year of revolutions in Europe. Karl Marx and Frederick Engels would meet and publish one of the most influential books in modern history, the Communist Manifesto. My gosh, we've got a lot to get through. And the Victorians had a lot to deal with. Luckily, they had a lot of new technologies to help. Besides photography, there was the telegraph, increased use of railways, postage stamps, vulcanisation of rubber, safety matches, and the beginnings of anaesthesia. I did mention we've got a lot to cover, right? Before we plunge onwards... I'd like to say a sincere thank you to all of you who responded to my request for donations. It was really successful and I've now got the writing program and paid for some journal subscriptions. I've had a lovely review on Apple Podcasts from Papa.Luca, USA 5 Star, quote, one of the best. I've been listening to many British history podcasts including the British History Podcast with Jamie and Pax Britannica with Sam. And this one 
is right up with the best. Chris is clearly passionate about the topic, approaches it from a unique angle, and is thoroughly engaging. I highly recommend, end quote. Oh, thanks. Really appreciate that. It's an honour to be up there with the BHP and Pax Britannica. I'd also like to welcome new patrons, Matthew Farron, who has become a lovable chimney sweep, and also Raven Conspiracy, who joins the ranks of respectable governors. Lastly, before we start, listener and top bloke Rob in Australia has reminded me that I clearly had a senior moment in the photography episode when I said Napoleon died in 1840. Obviously, he actually died in 1821 and was reburied in 1840. So, if he had lived 25 years more, he would have been photographed. Sorry about that. And if his descendants are listening, please forgive me. At least Rob didn't hold it against me. He's even posted in the Facebook group some genuine Victorian photos of a town in Australia with his ancestor's shop and some interesting street scenes. As promised, I've started adding photos that I mentioned onto the Age of Victoria podcast website. So go and check it out. It's there in the menu under resources and photographs. And I will try and keep adding a couple of photos every week till we build up a huge collection. Now, for today, I thought we should look at some important topics that are associated with heteronormative sex and were just as important for the Victorians as us. Menstruation, contraception, pregnancy and childbirth in the early Victorian era. Obviously, gay and lesbian Victorians didn't have these issues in the same way, although they had more than enough on their plates to make up for it. Bisexuals did have to worry about contraception and pregnancy, though finding information on Victorian bisexuality is notoriously tricky, as bi-erasure is not a new phenomenon. But we will leave the discussion of alternative sexualities for another episode, as there was a lot more to it than Oscar Wilde or Anne Lister, aka Gentleman Jack. This exploration will actually come after the upcoming episode on class in Victorian Britain, as it will make more sense once you finally get that much-needed deep dive into the class system. So, basic facts time. The vast majority of women menstruate once their bodies reach puberty. A brief summary from Medical News Today gives you an explanation for why, in case you missed it in class. Quote, during the menstrual cycle, hormones cause an ovary to produce and release an egg. The ovary also releases the hormones estrogen and progesterone. Estrogen primarily causes the womb lining to thicken, while progesterone prepares the womb for the implantation of an egg. If no sperm fertilizes the egg, pregnancy does not occur and the egg dissolves. The levels of estrogen and progesterone decline and the womb lining falls away. It leaves the body through the vagina, giving the person a period, end quote. That's all very simple today with our knowledge of hormones and our use of MRIs and ultrasounds. For the Victorians, things were different. There are some circumstances where a woman will not have bleeding despite not being pregnant. This is called amenorrhea. If a girl grows to 16 and doesn't bleed, 
it is called primary amenorrhea. If it happens to an adult woman, it is called secondary amenorrhea. There are a variety of causes, including low body weight, stress, nutritional deficiencies, and excessive exercise. Those are things which immediately leap out at you when you think of a typical Victorian working class woman, always doing chores, perhaps working in a factory, and unable to afford decent food. Other causes can include premature ovarian failure, polycystic ovary syndrome, Turner's syndrome, and pituitary gland problems, as well as excessive weight gain, and in the modern era, some antidepressants or some hormonal birth controls. I'm sure you will be shocked to hear that Victorian doctors in the 1840s didn't know this very basic information. If the understanding of men's health was primitive, understanding of women's was sometimes Stone Age or even just utterly bonkers. In the Stone Age camp was James McGregor Allen, who, addressing the Anthropological Society of London, seemed to sum up every awful Victorian stereotype we hold today. Quote, Although the duration of the menstrual period differs greatly, race, temperament and health, it will be well within the mark to state that women are unwell from this cause on the average two days in the month or say one month in the year. At such times, women are unfit for any great mental or physical labour. They suffer under a languor and depression which disqualify them for thought or action and render it extremely doubtful how far they can be considered responsible beings while the crisis lasts. Much of the inconsequent conduct of women, their petulance, caprice and irritability may be traced directly to this cause. It is not improbable that instances of feminine cruelty which startle us with the normal gentleness of the sex are attributable to the mental excitement caused by this periodical illness. Michelet defines woman as an invalid, which she emphatically is as compared with man. In intellectual labour, man has surpassed, does now, and always will surpass woman, for the obvious reason that nature does not periodically interrupt his thoughts. End quote. It had the benefit of being a pretty memorable quote, but obviously completely wrong. Not just wrong because we look back today and think of it as sexist, perhaps. Wrong because it didn't even fit the evidence that was readily available to Victorian doctors and scientists. A very brief look at the working patterns of working class women would have easily shown they could and did work during their periods. Victorian employers were not keen on giving employees time off. And so, period or pregnant, if a Victorian woman's husband or relatives didn't support her, she had to work. Once you look into James Allen, you can immediately see he wasn't trying to come to a scientific view, he was letting his ideological prejudices drive his conclusions. His other works, besides anthropology, include writing the play The Woman Hater in 1856, and The Intellectual Severance of Men and Women in 1860, and Women's Suffrage, Wrong in Principle and Practice in 1890. His supposedly satirical autobiography, The Last Days of a Bachelor, states he only has three days to live 
when he suffers the miserable death of being married, and he asks philosophically, quote, What prompts man on the eve of death or marriage, or any other great calamity, to desire to unbosom their minds and address the world they are about to leave? Why do they live their whole past lives over again, crowd within the compass of a few fleeting moments, large volumes from the immense library of memory? Why are such recollections so vivid? Why does the past become beautiful and enchanting exactly in proportion as the future appears cheerless and void, appalling and desperate? End quote. With men like Alan investigating the role of women's health in society, it was little wonder that progress was slow and understanding was thin. I also deeply, deeply pity the poor woman who married him, although I would dearly have loved to hear his wedding day speech in all its pompous horror. Broadly speaking, Victorian women used napkins or clothes as menstrual pads, but remember, panties as we understand them didn't exist. Women wore bloomers that laced at the top but were crotchless. The napkins were washed in cold water and then soaked, often in copper tubs. There were home remedies for period-related pain. For example, in her 1882 Eve's Daughters, Marian Harland recommends hot ginger tea, water bottles for the feet, and, if all else fails, gin. She warns against resorting to opium for period pain, and, given the serious risks of opium addiction, this was sensible advice. It is, however, ironic that there is a growing feminist movement calling for menstrual leave to support women who have heavy periods and significant debilitating pain. Many countries have taken note and the Soviet Union introduced a national policy in 1922, Japan in 1947 and Indonesia in 1948. Whilst modern Spain and Australia are both looking at how policies could be implemented. Campaigners insist it would help boost employee engagement and productivity, as well as reducing absences, especially if tied to abolishing VAT on sanitary-related products. As a quick reminder of the biological facts, to quote from Medical News Today, according to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, ovulation occurs around 14 days before a person expects to have their next period, if their monthly cycle is 28 days, end quote. Most people ovulate between days 11 to 21 of their cycle. The first day of their last menstrual period is day one of the cycle. Ovulation does not always occur on the same day every month and can vary by a day or more on either side of the expected date. Doctors call the part of the cycle around ovulation the fertile window because the chance of pregnancy is at its highest at this time. For example, if ovulation occurs on day 14, a person can conceive on that day or within the following 24 hours. However, their fertile window begins a few days before ovulation, because sperm can survive for up to five days inside the female body. So, even if a person does not have sex, on day 14 or 15, it is still possible to become pregnant if they had sex without using contraception on days 9 to 13. 
the likelihood of conception rises from day 8, reaching its maximum on day 13 and decreasing to zero by day 30. Unfortunately, a lot of Victorian doctors thought conception was most likely to occur just before or just after the period. So well-intentioned doctors giving advice to couples about the timing of pregnancy were leading them astray. Nor did doctors before the 1840s realise that women released eggs. You might laugh at first, but be honest, without ultrasound, MRI and other tools, how exactly do you think the internal workings of people were understood? Anatomy relied heavily on the dissection of corpses, which wasn't a useful model for the release of eggs inside a live human. Even advocating for birth control could lead to trouble. Campaigner and podcast hero Annie Besant, who you might remember from the Matchstick Girls episode, wrote passionately about the need for birth control. Naturally, being awesome, Annie didn't just talk discreetly, but co-edited a broadside against society in 1877 by updating an 1832 pamphlet called The Fruits of Philosophy. It was graphic in the extreme to Victorian eyes, mentioning semen, blood, vaginal fluids, ova, cervixes, and much more. To make sure people noticed, she delivered it to lawyers, judges, and the police. They drew a huge crowd for the first day's sales, but no police attention. So Annie wrote to them and the newspapers to state she would be selling an obscene book at a given address. She was finally arrested as she wanted, ready to kick the establishment in the teeth. The prosecutor was angrily denunciationable, saying, quote, This is a filthy, dirty book. No human being would allow that book to lie on his table. No decently educated English husband would allow even his wife to have it. End quote. Naturally, Annie seized the opportunity to further rub the Victorian establishment's nose in it by refusing legal counsel and representing herself. So, the irritated legal establishment were forced to watch a woman take the lead in court. Luckily, her co-defendant was actually legally experienced as Annie's arguments, writing about birth control was not obscene, but rather a way to prevent a population crisis and mass starvation, especially in India, you can imagine were not well received by the court. She stated to the shocked court, quote, There is nothing wrong in a natural desire, rightly and properly gratified. There is no harm in feeling thirsty because people get drunk. And there is no harm in gratifying the sexual instinct if it can be gratified without injury to anyone else and without harm to the morals of society. And with due regard to the health of those whom nature has given us the power of summoning into the world. The notion that pleasure qua pleasure is wrong is an aesthetic notion, which is at the base of a large amount of the profligacy of the present day. End quote. Given her well-known anti-imperialism, her persistent criticism of British and East India Company activities in the empire, as well as her denunciations of established gender roles, it is lucky they got off on a technicality. There was no stopping Annie, though. 
and she had plenty of crusading spirit left. As a result of this famous trial, her estranged husband sued her, custody of their daughter, on the basis she was a corrupting influence, and pointed to the pamphlet as evidence. He also presented evidence of her atheism and her long-standing criticism of English marriage laws, which a defiant Annie adopted and threw at the court, as well as defending the need for birth control. Tragically, Annie lost the case in the Court of Appeal and her daughter. A lot of people just didn't want more children. Despite the advantages larger families had in rural areas, it could have been due to personal choice, fear of childbirth, lack of money or space, personal principles, or a desire for more education or even a career. Ultimately, a woman in control of her body generally delays having children and has fewer children. Please note the phrasing, it is not giving her control of her body. She should have that as the default. It is circumstances and society that takes the control away. In the Victorian period, loss of bodily autonomy was a given when a woman married, even when the woman was making a conscious decision to conform to the stereotype of husband, wife, mother, children, the actual family unit varied wildly over time. Mortality rates were high in the early Victorian period, so anyone starting a family had to understand that children and adults could all die suddenly. It followed that step-parenthood, moves to relatives, children being orphaned, loss of some or all children were a fact of family life. Child mortality was huge, even adults died with frightening regularity. The family unit could therefore be highly unstable, despite the assumptions we sometimes leap to about the classic nuclear family of Victorian times. For example, think how often children in Dickens's novels are packed off to live with someone else, or the huge numbers of widowed men or parents who lost children Maternal mortality rates during childbirth were also shockingly high. That meant there was real interest in forms of birth control and not just from campaigners like Annie. What kind of birth control was available? Aside from abstinence, which has never in human history been particularly effective, non-penetration was best. Oral sex was sometimes called the French way and anal sex was also a good alternative. Condoms did exist in some forms. A reusable sheepskin one could be handmade for the wealthy. Luckily, Charles Goodyear invented vulcanised rubber in 1839. By the 1850s, they were available, and being made of rubber, they gave the condom its universal slang of wearing a rubber, even though most modern ones are made of varieties of latex. Early condoms were often made to order and therefore correctly sized but unpleasantly tight. They were also reusable given how thick the rubber was. Gentlemen, you should at this point be extremely grateful for the modern, comfortable, reliable condom. As a bonus, it is great at preventing STIs too. So use it without complaint. When as the Victorians, like fictional Sir Harry Flashman might have said, jousting in the lists of a moor with a new mount. 
I try not to sound like Sid James when I do these bits, but it is hard. Condoms are great. Use them, please. Sadly, in the 1870s, religious campaigners in the USA managed to get contraception banned, resulting in covert advertising by enterprising companies who swore they weren't selling contraceptives, they were just selling rubber goods, novelty-shaped ones, or rubber shields. Other methods, such as douches, vaginal blockers, chemicals, lemons in the vagina, or the weather method, all proved mostly worthless. When birth control had failed, the only other options were to proceed with the pregnancy or risk an abortion. We know family sizes reduced for the middle class from the 1850s onwards, but beyond that, it's really hard to know what was effective contraception, what was abortion, and what was births going unrecorded and children being abandoned. Lord Ellenborough's Act of 1803 really started the process of criminalisation of abortion. In 1837, the Offences Against the Person Act criminalised abortion into a recognised offence, and the Offences Against the Person Act in 1861 fully criminalised all abortions, including formalising the position that the mother herself would be criminally liable for procuring an abortion as well as the people performing it. There was also the offence of procuring or supplying substances for an abortion. There were multiple reasons the Victorians were so anti-abortion. Religion was obviously a huge part of the reason, but abortion also struck at the heart of Victorian views of what a woman should be. The ideal Victorian woman was the wife and loving mother. To have an abortion was therefore an act that seemed unnatural. It was also rebellious. The Victorian woman suffered from her body being considered the property of her husband. By extension, the child was his. To have an abortion was to rebel against the status of the woman as property and to attack the patriarchal nature of Victorian society and its gender roles. Many doctors were shocked that many women simply refused to see abortion as wrong. Legal or not, abortions happened. In his famous survey, journalist Henry Mayhew noted that abortions were frequent amongst the many prostitutes he met in the 1850s and 1860s. Even in the novel Middlemarch, the character Rosamond appears to induce a miscarriage by deliberately horse-riding, which was about as blatant as an author to get away with in depicting abortion. Adverts appeared offering pills for ladies, couched in discreet language, understood to be for abortions. One advert in the Leeds Times in 1899 contained a supposedly genuine review from a satisfied customer. Quote, Madam, I'm glad to be able to report that the last two doses had the desired effect. I shall recommend your remedy to all my married friends. I think it is excellent, and should I be in difficulty again myself, should at once apply to you. End quote. That said, any method of abortion in the 19th century was dangerous. Tools for manual removal 
were seldom sterilised, with potentially horrific results. The plant, Savin, or Unia Paris Sabina, was used as a popular abortion drug, although this was a result of it being poisonous. Don't think these events were occurring in an easy vacuum. Abortions arose in the messy circumstances of everyday life, at a time when contraception was rare and an unexpected child could literally ruin someone. Take this testimony from an abortion trial in the Old Bailey Court in 1834. The victim was Mary Jane Wolfe and the accused was William Childs. Quote, I am 17 years old. My father and mother kept the chase and horses at Hammersmith. The prisoner was in their employ as an ostler. I formed an intimacy with him in April 1833. I had connection with him in a particular way in April last year and continued to be intimate in that way until June. I had connection with him after June. I had reason to suppose I was pregnant about the 26th of June. I mentioned my being so to him a day or two before that. I was about six weeks advanced in pregnancy then, between six weeks and two months. On the 26th of June, he told me I must take some medicine to cause miscarriage. I told him I would not take it. He persuaded me and said I had better, for if my parents found out, they would turn me out of house and home, and then I would have no place to go. He gave me a powder and desired me to mix it with water, as I would salts. It was rather a dirty white colour. I took some of it, but finding it a bitter and disagreeable taste, I was afraid to take the whole. I took it in water, and it sunk in lumps to the bottom. I took about a third of it. I was afraid to take more, and threw the remainder away. It did not melt. It was in little lumps. I did not put all the contents of the paper into the water. I did not take all that it put in the glass, only a part. It stuck round the sides of the glass. I saw the prisoner again in about an hour. He asked me if I had taken the powder. I told him I had. He asked me if I had taken the whole. I told him I had, fearing he would make me take a second dose if I told him the truth. He asked me if I felt ill in consequence of taking it. I told him I did not, but in the course of a short time afterwards, I was taken very ill and was obliged to go to bed. I took the powder at about 11 o'clock in the day and was obliged to go to bed at 2 and kept my bed until the Sunday, which was on Wednesday. It made me ill in every way. It made me sick. I vomited. It gave me a very great pain in my stomach and bowels and everywhere. I had not taken anything else that day which would likely cause these effects. I was very ill for 14 days, end quote. So that's basically a 17-year-old girl and her boyfriend. They had sex and she got pregnant. He either persuaded her or forced her to take something to end the pregnancy with the unpleasant results. If things went wrong, the poor mother was at the mercy of Victorian emergency health care. For the rich, this might mean reasonable care for the period, but a distinct lack of the staples of modern medicine, like intravenous fluids and antibiotics to treat infections. Bleeding and infection from a botched abortion could 
easily be a death sentence. This could all be going on anywhere, from a grand bedroom with gas lighting to a back alley squat with no lights and a floor covered in mud and human waste. German midwife Ernestine Katz was charged with murder when it went wrong for a servant girl named Kate Kennedy, as reported in the Dundee Post, quote, the evidence went to show that the deceased, seeing an advertisement in a newspaper, went to the accused house, where an illegal operation was performed. Blood poisoning followed, and Kennedy died in St George's Hospital. The jury added that newspapers should observe more caution in the insertion of such advertisements. End quote. A 67-year-old nurse named Jane White was charged with the murder of Alice Birmingham after the abortion operation went wrong and she was sentenced to death. For the poor, a local pharmacy or an older woman in the community might be the only recourse. Gin, of course, was a possibility and dying in agony in an unknown room then being tossed into an unmarked pauper's grave were very real possible outcomes. You can see why advocates of sex only in marriage and restraint even then were not entirely off the mark when they claimed sex was dangerous for women and best done sparingly. Healthcare remained essentially a private sector business with the disastrous results that are guaranteed when the bulk of the population can't access cheap healthcare at point of delivery. Some women might have been able to turn to the few charity or teaching hospitals available if they lived nearby. Of course, if you could afford it, there was at least Dr. Collis Brown's miracle painkiller and hugely popular medicine called Chlordane. It did at least contain some effective painkillers as a 30ml bottle contained 12 doses of morphia and 36 doses of chloroform. I'm sure overdose was possible and morphia isn't ideal for someone suffering profuse internal hemorrhaging, but at least it didn't contain arsenic or lead. With all this in mind, you can understand why Victorian fathers could be hellish touchy about who came in speaking distance of their daughters or nieces. A good marriage to a man who wanted children but controlled his passions was the best to be hoped for. An older man with a lower sex drive and good fortune and social status was the least risky. You can see why the middle-aged vicar was a perennial favourite, even if he was more interested in bird-watching than bird-watching. The last thing any middle-class father wanted was for his daughter to get pregnant by a junior bankrupt lieutenant with a gambling habit and an existing engagement. The stigma of illegitimacy was real and could be deadly, with unmarried mothers considered a disgrace at best to a rich family and often outcasts in poorer communities. Unwanted children were sometimes brutally dealt with. Almost all Victorian women would have been religious to some degree, and seeking an abortion would have seemed deeply sinful, or even similar to infanticide. But, and it is a big but, with plenty of speculation attached, with the lack of ultrasound and the lack of understanding of the development of the fetus in the womb, 
some medical historians have suggested that women didn't really view an early stage fetus as living in the way that we do today with our more involved and visual understanding of prenatal development. Remember, there was no ultrasound at this point. These historians point to the large number of fetuses provided for dissection after miscarriage and the enormous child mortality rate, which meant getting attached to a fetus or child was highly risky. Infanticide was extremely common, as coroner and MP Thomas Wakeley lamented in 1844, whilst coroner Edwin Lancaster stated he was certain of at least 12,000 women who had murdered their children in London alone. At least 150 dead children were found in London streets in 1862 alone. You do have to make a little allowance for some elements of moral panic and Victorian hyperbole, but even so, the figures were terrible. Still, no woman was hanged for the infanticide of her own child after 1849. The number of women charged was vanishingly small and many cases appear to have been more due to women attempting to conceal the pregnancy than having to give birth alone with all the high risks associated. Many times the father wasn't even aware of the pregnancy or birth until the outcry afterwards. It was genuinely hard to tell if a just-born infant had been killed or had simply not survived the primitive medical processes around birth. Infants were sometimes hidden in drawers, put in chests, or wrapped up in newspaper, hardly suggesting premeditated murder, and much more like the actions of people acting in panic and trying to remain secret. That said, Hannah Marie Pipkins was a noted exception. She was a junior maid who had concealed her pregnancy. She gave birth alone and in immense pain. What happened next was disputed at trial. The child was found dead a few hours after birth, stuffed into the coal cellar with its throat cut. At her trial, her lawyer picked apart the medical evidence to try to show either the child was stillborn or that the umbilical cord had become wrapped around the child's neck and Hannah had been trying to use a knife to cut it. There was also a suggestion of insanity. Hannah was found guilty of concealing a birth and given a two-year prison sentence, which goes against the views we often have of the Victorian court system as a brutal and merciless machine handing out heavy sentences. Many courts bent over backwards to go easy on women in difficult circumstances. Adelaide Friedman, for instance, went to a chemist to get salts of lemon, which contained two parts of oxalic acid and one of potass, which was commonly used to remove stains from laundry. Adelaide used them on her newborn baby to poison it, then took a dose herself. The baby died, but she survived. She was found not guilty by reason of insanity and given a permanent sentence to an asylum. Her testimony about what was a form of depression, possibly postnatal, was deemed sufficient to spare her from a criminal conviction. It is easy for us to say we are sympathetic to women, 
who don't have access to contraception and abortion, but it is hard to deal with someone who had cut their baby's throat. It can't have been easy for the judge or jury either. Being honest, can we ever know how many poor, starving women held an infant a little too tightly to the breast so that the older ones stood more of a chance during a famine? Of course. Concealment of birth was also a crime in itself. Many sympathised with mothers like Anne Spooner, who fainted away after the delivery and awoke to find the child dead. She was charged with concealment, but in Scotland the prevailing view was harsher and it was considered that concealment went hand in hand with murder by many Scottish judges. Juries, on the other hand, tended to bend over backwards to avoid a guilty verdict and many English judges were notorious for giving the accused enormous loopholes to jump through. This was in part because the medical evidence was often incredibly weak and there were just so many ways for a child to die during or just after delivery. Turning to illegitimacy, it could mean immense social stigma. The risk of being banished from society meant a person was highly likely to die. Who could fail to sympathise with a desperate Victorian maid at risk of being fired after getting pregnant by the footman and perhaps starving in the gutter, even if she survived childbirth? Perhaps she and the child would starve together. Was it really so wrong of her to seek a back alley abortion? Or, God forbid, be reduced to throwing herself down the stairs? After all, the psychological toll of abortions, miscarriages and deaths in childbirth can be immense and lifelong. Even a planned abortion can put a strain on a modern relationship and fathers can be badly psychologically affected too. Losing a child is something few ever fully get over. At least Victorian women were expected to grieve and emote. Men are not well supported during these events today, with many employers simply ignoring male grief at the loss of a child before birth. In the Victorian era, men would simply have had to bottle up any emotion and perhaps take it out on the sports field or by drinking. Criminals preyed on the desperate. One gang of blackmailers took out an advert to entice women to seek abortions, then forced them to pay for their silence. They made a staggering fortune of £2,000 before they were caught. Overall, though, there were generally more women than men, in a ratio of around 105 to 100, up to 109 to 100 in women's favour, mostly due to the astonishingly dangerous work for men and frequent wars. As the trend of younger marriages grew during the 19th century, population grew due to the lack of contraception. Like many empires before them, the Victorians benefited from a demographic explosion. Women were often advised to keep forceps, needles, thread, blankets, kettles and spirits handy for childbirth in case they needed to deliver the baby themselves and stitch themselves up afterwards. This might include being back at work on the factory floor later the same day. Banish the image of a weak Victorian woman, because the reality was they had to be tough. Above all, be thankful for modern medicine with effective contraception, good sex education and reliable 
safe abortions, which are the cornerstones of women's freedom and equality, as well as markers of a civilised society. Okay, thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. The show also has a Facebook page and a group. Just search for Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Takes less time than making a coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes. Or you can go to Patreon and search for Age of Victoria Podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.